This is a Federal News Network podcast. The much-anticipated next-generation government-wide acquisition contract is a mess. It starts with the National Institutes of Health's IT Acquisition and Assessment Center, or NITAC. The center is facing a backlash from industry over last-minute changes it made to the solicitation for its $50 billion CIOSP4 information technology services vehicle. Federal News Network's Jason Miller has been asking around. He joins me now with why contractors are so concerned and what they want NITAC to do about it. And Jason, just give us a brief reminder about CIOSP4. It's the follow-on to... SP3, and it has been very popular, the predecessor, so a lot of attention. Exactly, and and CIO SP4 is one of those that everyone in the industry has been talking about. I get emails all the time. What's going on with CIO SP4? You know, Tom, it focuses on 10 IT services and software areas. It has a health IT flavor, but not all about health IT. Some of those areas include IT operations and maintenance, integration services, cybersecurity, and of course, Tom, we have to say digital government and cloud services. Now, as you mentioned, $50 billion is that's the per contract holder ceiling. And NITEC is trying to do something very innovative with the GWAC. And this is something the, the government-wide acquisition contract really hasn't changed much in the last 25 years. So what NITEC is doing is they're combining the unrestricted vehicle with their small business vehicle, but they're allowing set-asides and other ways to promote these small firms. And I think this is why so many contractors are so excited about CIOSP4. Now, the solicitation was delayed by several weeks. It finally came out. And now the proposal's due date has been pushed back to July 8th. And there's this constant churn of concern coming from industry. Yeah, so this is to NIH what soup is to NASA, basically. In many ways, this is their big vehicle, right? This is what they're doing. OMB likes to use the term best in class. Tom, you and I could could riff off what best in class really means. But putting that aside for a second, this is their big vehicle that that really they they get a lot of attention for. A lot of agencies use it. And I think a lot of agencies, I was told by Brian Goodger, the acting director of NITEC, that a lot of agencies are really trying to say, we're going to push a lot of work to CIOS before once it's up and running. And that's about a year away, give or take. And they made some changes to that solicitation, but didn't give contractors very much time to change their bids. And these were fundamental changes. So tell us why contractors are so upset now. The changes to the solicitation is one thing. The other issue that that have come up is around the questions and answers. Uh, Tom, when any agency puts out a contract, they always say, okay, questions are due by this date. We'll get you answers back. And those answers are really important for vendors to how they develop their bids. What NITAC did is, number one, they didn't answer all the questions. And then, two, they combined similar questions, which is frustrating to vendors because was my question combined in it or was it not answered? And how was it combined? And I think that's a real frustration point for a lot of the vendors because, again, it's key to how they put their bids together. Now, the changes that NITAC made really affect small firms. So, Tom, we'll get into the little bit of nitty-gritty here when it comes to small business contracting, but to keep it at a very high level, the Mentor-Protégé program, large business helps a small business grow, understand the ins and outs of federal contracting. Under SBA rules, you can use all past performance from both the mentor and the protégé. What NITAC did, last-minute change, is say you can only use one example of past performance from the mentor-protege relationship. And that really puts a lot of small businesses in a tough spot. Part of the reason they put are in a tough spot now is because they have to go back and get that past performance to add to their bids. And the time it takes to get your 
customer to sign off on the past performance documentation, get information about it, is really takes much longer than the weak extension that NITEC gave a lot of agencies. In other words, you might have this answer due to NIH on Thursday, I guess, but yet it could take a month to get something out of, I don't know, the Defense Department, if that's what you needed, if that's where your past performance best picture of yourself happens to reside. Exactly. And that month you don't have anymore and you weren't preparing to get that because if you if, if NIH had told you in November or in September of last year, you need one mentor protege past performance documentation and you need up to three of your, of, of your own, then you could have started that process. And I think that's the frustration that you're hearing. Both the Coalition for Government Procurement and the Professional Services Council have contacted NIH and NITAC asking more questions and asking for more time as well. So I think that that's where that frustration is building up. They made these major changes without a lot of leeway for industry to really change their approach. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And of course, the companies are reluctant to stand up on their hind legs and yell back at their customers. So they turn to these industry associations. Are the industry associations speaking with basically one voice? And what do they want NITAC to do now? I think both PSE and the Coalition for Government Procurement want similar things. Number one, they want NITEC to take a half a step back, delay the proposal deadline again. Currently, it's July 8th. PSE is asking for the end of July for a proposal deadline. And then Coalition for Government Procurement specifically, but both would like, I think, to re-engage industry, to talk about the changes, to figure out what's a happy medium. If, if we're not going to go full on all past performance from your mentor-protege approach, what can we make happen? Because the time is short, and that's really putting some small businesses specifically at a disadvantage. I think the other thing they'd want to do is they want all the questions answered. They want NITAC to go back and separate. You know, if you've got 100 questions and 40 of them were all about mentor-protege, as an example, Tom, they want all 40 of those answers separately because I think each vendor looks at those Q&As differently and they want to make sure they interpret it correctly. And, Tom, if you ever read the Q&As of these from industry, a lot of times there's not a lot of effort that goes into the answering, meaning it's not like the agency has to write a 1,000 words per answer. Sometimes they say yes or sometimes they say uh, no, <laughs> very simple questions. <laughs> so I think that both CGP and PSC say put through the effort, delay the proposal due dates, and let's get everything answered because it's going to be better for everyone. Interesting how these things come down from the government so often before holiday weekends. <laughs> In this case, 4th of July, we've heard stories about changes for Thanksgiving and that take place over Christmas. You have to do your red teaming. What is NITAC saying? Have they responded yet publicly? NITEC's not saying much because it's an open procurement. You know, I, I was uh, in touch with, with their folks, and basically they said because it's an active solicitation, really in the question and answer period has ended, we're not really able to answer many questions about what's going on. And they did say, you know, if, if you have questions, you can send them in to their main website or their main email address, but they're not really going to tell you much new because of, of really rules that fall under it. Now, when I've talked to some lawyers and talked to some contracting experts, John Sharaka, former SBA, small business contracting official, he goes, Jason, this really is opening the door for a protest, a pre-award protest because of the changes they made. And the mentor-protege changes go against the SBA rules, again, opening the door. So, Tom, I wouldn't be surprised if you see somebody file a protest before that July 8th deadline. It's a pre-proposal or pre-bid protest with GAO that would extend this, again, even longer because of frustration in NITEX, what, what many believe is their lack of transparency or their lack of responsiveness. And haven't we also seen in other agencies, I believe GSA uh, last year, where when there is massive protest and upsetness 
on the part of industry at the solicitation stage, never mind the award stage, that can often sink a GWAC effort. That can absolutely sink a GWAC effort, or at least make the delay really unbearable for a lot. I think you saw that with 8A Stars 2, the constants that's a protest. It was pre-award protest. It was post-award protest. I think you see it with a lot of these large vehicles. And I think one of the reasons, and, and listen, former GSA Administrator Emily Murphy talked about this when she was leading GSA, we have to push price down to the task order level, not make price part of it, and really just let everybody in who's qualified. And I think in some ways, NITAC was looking to do that. They never said how many exact awards they would make, but it was upwards of two, three, four hundred awards they were talking about making. So it's not like they want to reduce competition. They want more competition because that will drive prices down. So it's very interesting that they made some of these changes on one hand, but on the other hand, they really want to open the door for many, many contractors to be on the vehicle. All right. So maybe they will come out with a respite, but at this point, Thursday's your deadline, folks. And we're waiting to see if any more amendments drop this week and, and we'll be on the watch out, Tom. So, uh, you know, tune in. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new red card reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash red card to get all the details. Restrictions apply.